Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 157, Blessed Urban II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everybody, today we get to pick up the story from last time with Blessed Victor III's erstwhile rival Odo or Eudes of Ostia being chosen to be his successor. But before we talk about the papacy of Eudes, or as we now know him, Blessed Urban II, his early life is super interesting and it gives us an awesome opportunity to see what is happening in the medieval church as the papacy is reforming things. Eudes was born into the minor nobility of Chantillon-sur-Marne, which was a castle in the northern part of France. His family wasn't particularly important or ancient. He seems to have been destined from the church from an early age, like many of these medieval bishops and priests were. And he was sent to the cathedral school at Rems to study there. And there he encountered one of the most vibrant intellectual scenes in Europe at the time with one of the most holy teachers. Now, if you remember from a while back, the cathedral school at Rems was really built up by the great Gerbert of Aureliac over a century ago, and he was one of the foremost minds of his time, and he became Pope Sylvester II. So this school that he built at Rems is part of, and in fact, the heart of what scholars now call the Ottonian Renaissance, which is a period stretching from the late 10th to the late 11th centuries. But even more impressive than the school Eudes attended was the teacher. The main professor in Rems at the time was St. Bruno of Cologne, a German priest who had been a pupil at Rems himself and who ran the school from 1057 to 1075. Bruno was incredibly learned and holy. He was a real light to those around him. And here's where we just need to take a little detour in our story away from Eudes and stick with Bruno for just a little bit more. And I promise it will be worth it. In 1080, Bruno discovered that he was going to be named a bishop. He pointedly refused and instead decided to leave all secular life behind and with a couple of companions to seek a more solitary and contemplative vocation. At first, he went to Robert of Molsem, who had done something similar five years before and whose foundation would later become the Cistercian Order. And we're going to talk a lot more about the Cistercians, don't worry, later on in this episode and in others. And after learning a lot from these early Cistercians, Bruno decided to move on, and he and his small band of companions were given a home in the mountains of southern France by a sympathetic bishop, St. Hugh of Grenoble. They built a hermitage in the mountains near a place called Chartreuse, and there began what we now know today as the Carthusian Order, one of the strictest and most contemplative of all the religious orders, and who live in basically the same way today as they did nearly a thousand years ago. They were lives utterly dead to the world and totally given to God. In fact, there's a great documentary on the Carthusians called Into the Great Silence, which is really worth watching. Now, I took this detour because in the last uh, section, we met two founders of two of the most important religious orders of the Middle Ages, the Cistercians and the Carthusians. Now, up to this point, the biggest players and the most ardent holy reformers have come from the Benedictines of Cluny. And while Cluny is still going to play a huge role, just wait a second for that, there's something really amazing happening in the 11th and early 12th centuries. We see this flowering of saints and religious orders. Along with the Cistercians and the Carthusians, we've already met the Camaldolese hermits founded by St. Romuald, who sprung up half a century earlier. And we will see in a couple episodes St. Norbert and the Premonstratensians, or the Norbertines. 
What starts with one reforming monastery in Cluny has now branched into several reforming religious orders, headed up by and populated with saints, spreading the gospel and bringing a new flowering of holiness and faith to Europe. By following the papal story, which is the point of this podcast, I'll admit, uh, some of these guys will jump in and out, but I wanted to take this little detour just to give you a sense of the broader picture. So just a couple episodes ago, everything was dark. The general outlook in Europe was one of corruption and human weakness. And now there's this incredible flowering of monastic life. But now back to the point of this podcast, which is Eudes. After completing his study at Rems, he became a canon in the Rems Cathedral, and he was eventually made archdeacon of the diocese. But like many zealous young clerics at the time, he found his way to the great abbey of Cluny. Cluny was at the time led by one of its greatest abbots, the great St. Hugh, who undertook a massive building project, causing the abbey church to be the largest structure in Europe at the time. At Cluny, Eudes was made the grand prior. He was the second in command then to St. Hugh. But his time at Cluny was going to be short. In 1079, the Pope, St. Gregory VII, sent a letter to St. Hugh asking him to send some of his best monks to Rome to help with the reform of the church. Eudes, of course, was sent, and he found himself in Rome in the middle of the reforms and the battles of the pontificate of St. Gregory VII. St. Gregory quickly made Eudes one of his top cardinals. He ordained him the Cardinal Bishop of Ostia in 1080. He served as an ambassador for the Pope. He was sent to Germany and to France on several occasions. And it was while he was in Germany that St. Gregory VII died in Salerno. Now, if you remember from last week, Victor III was basically forced to be Pope. And he kept vacillating on whether or not he actually wanted to and whether actually he wanted to accept it. And part of the reason could have been his temperament. Part of the reason could have been his health. He recognized he wasn't in the best of health and the Pope needed to be in in fairly good health. And for a little bit, Eudes, or as I called him last episode, Odo, turned against the Pope. But he fairly quickly made up and was eventually named by Victor as his desired successor. Now, if you remember, at this time, the Pope had been forced from Rome, which was in the hands of the anti-Pope Guibert. So the cardinal bishops and the representative delegates by the other ranks of the cardinals came to Eudes and elected him pope in March 12, 1088. He took the name Urban II and immediately informed the church and the world through a letter that he was a son and follower of St. Gregory VII, writing the day after his election, all that he rejected, I reject, what he condemned, I condemn, what he loved, I embrace, what he regarded as Catholic, I approve of, and to whatever side he was attracted, I incline. But like the two popes before him, Urban II started out without the support of the emperor, with an anti-pope in Rome, and with many of the cardinals, it turns out, against him. So he followed the same playbook as his predecessors. He went to the Normans for help. The great Robert Guiscard, the ruler of the Normans, had died recently, and his sons, Roger and Bowman, were duking it out for power in his absence. So Urban travels south during 1089 to try and mediate between the two sons of Robert so they could peacefully coexist and then help him out with the anti-pope. And he managed to get everything settled. Roger got one territory, Bowman the other, and Robert's brother, Roger III. But after a brief stay in Norman territory in southern Italy, it's possible the Normans sent some troops to help Urban get to Rome in 1089 and early 1090. But they weren't able to kick the anti-pope out, and Urban was living at San Bartolomeo in the Tiber Island in real poverty. His needs were being met by local Roman charities, not as the great ruler of the city of Rome. Now, Guibert, the anti-pope, called a synod in St. Peter's, which he accused Urban of inciting violence throughout Europe and excommunicated him. 
But it must be noted that in the same synod, the anti-pope's party endorsed some of the policies of the reformers, including clerical celibacy and an end to simony. So that at least is good news. The guys who are against reform are even now there jumping on the, on the boat. However, Guibert's time in Rome is finally numbered. In June of 1089, Urban's allies drove him from St. Peter's another time, and Urban said mass in St. Peter's Basilica. Urban returned to southern Italy again to try and settle down the Normans, who were still fighting for power, and he held a synod at Melfi, which proclaimed the usual reformist things for the church. And as we've seen in the past, a similar pattern emerged. Henry IV sent his forces to Rome. He got his anti-pope back into control. Urban has to flee south to Normans, etc. This happened twice more, in 1091 and in 1092. In 1093, the son of Henry IV, Conrad, revolted against his father, which helped draw his attention away from Rome and focus on his own territory. So in 1093, Urban was able to come back to Rome. But the forces of the antipope still held the castle San Angelo and could not be dislodged. However, the captain of the guard stationed at St. John Lateran, the cathedral of Rome, was finally convinced to turn away from the antipope and allowed Urban to be officially enthroned in the cathedra at the Great Basilica. Now, this back and forth between Urban and Henry and his anti-pope can be confusing. So rather than continuing to outline every little detail, I want to step back and discuss the broader context. The struggle played out on several levels. The highest level is this conflict in the temporal power of the emperor and the spiritual power of the pope, which was inserted by St. Gregory VII to be superior to and able to command the temporal power. Gregory, as we heard, made big claims in this regard. And when Henry was humbled at Canossa, it seemed like he had prevailed. But now Henry's fighting back and he seems to be winning. On a more regional level, this is a game of Italian politics. The Normans are the new force in the south and they want to support the papacy to give themselves prestige and legitimacy. While at the same time, the emperor wanted to consolidate his control of northern Italy, control that had slipped away because of the popularity of reforming movements in various Italian city-states, which were more closely allied to the papacy and to Rome. So the emperor was opposed in the north, particularly by Matilda of Tuscany, who we met in an earlier episode, and who was very supportive of the reforming papacy. So there's this swirling mix of Italian politics, Matilda, the emperor, the city-states, the reformers, the Normans. And if we look at this at an even more local level, it's a conflict in Roman politics between prominent families who controlled various castles in Rome itself. The antipope had Castle San Angelo, which, if you remember, was the traditional stronghold of the Crescenzi family, who obviously, if we remember from past episodes, hated the reforming popes, while Urban II and other reforming popes were supported by the Frangipani family and the Romans of Trastevere, who had always been ardent papal su- supporters in that particular neighborhood. Now, those family alliances and grievances and various factions are going to shift back and forth over the next couple episodes. But there's basically these three different levels, the the macro level, the Italian level, and the Roman level. So what we've seen over the past couple years has been Urban's party in Rome and in Italy getting him into Rome, then being driven out again, and his regrouping in southern Italy with the Normans to help him. In 1093, Matilda helped foment the rebellion of the son of Henry, Conrad, and then had him crowned king of Italy to help undercut Henry in Italy. And Henry himself was defeated militarily north of Milan. Again, without getting too into the weeds, the overall trend line pointed towards Urban and away from Henry. As Urban grew in prestige and allies, and the emperor and consequently his antipope weakened. In 1094, Henry's prestige was further weakened when his wife, the Empress Euprexia of Kiev, escaped from Henry's court and sought refuge with the Pope. 
She accused him of sexual misconduct and abuse, and as the story spread, many more parts of Europe started to turn against Henry. Urban II took up her case at the Synod of Piacenza, and everyone turned out. It was the soap opera of the century mixed in with ecclesiastical politics. Henry IV's guilt was proved. Eupraxia fled him and joined the convent for the rest of her life. And Urban's prestige as a moral center against a corrupt and degraded emperor and his antipope rose. So even though the antipope Guibert was still in Castle San Angelo and Henry was still emperor, in Italy they really didn't have any more power. Guibert was actively talking about resigning and giving up. And Urban had just held a huge council in the middle of northern Italy, which is normally imperial territory, without any fear of imperial troops. So with the emperor discredited and the anti-pope on the ropes, Urban II was freer to pursue church reform and to engage in the other major events of the day. The most important being the calling of the First Crusade. In fact, if you have heard of Urban II, if you know anything about his papacy, you know that he was the one who preached the First Crusade. And with the crusade, we will kind of wrap up our anti-pope problem. But before we do that, we need to cover briefly some of the pope's other efforts in church reform, mostly because it brings us into contact with two of our favorite awesome medieval saints. Now, the first is, of course, St. Bruno. After coming to Rome, Urban II called St. Bruno down to Rome to aid him in the process of church reform in Italy. Bruno came to Rome in 1090. We don't know exactly what his role is, other than that he was a very close confidant of the Pope and aided him much in his decision-making process throughout this time period. But suffice it to say, it's a good thing to have such an awesome saint in Rome at this time. The other awesome saint who aided the Pope during this time was the new and holy Archbishop of Canterbury, St. Anselm. St. Anselm was a profound theologian and philosopher. The previous Archbishop of Canterbury had been the famous Lanfranc of Beck, who we talked about in previous episodes with his dispute over the Holy Eucharist with the heretic Berenger of Tours. So when Lanfranc went to Canterbury, Anselm became the abbot of Beck. And then a couple of years after Lanfranc's death, Anselm was then made the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's actually a pretty crazy story. The king didn't want to appoint an archbishop. He wanted to have the see vacant so he could just take its revenues. But then the king fell sick. And Anselm didn't want to be made archbishop. He even avoided trips to England, lest people think he was ambitious for the position. But in 1094, he was in England, forced to the king's bedside, where he was convinced to appoint Anselm. So there, the nobles and the other church leaders forced Anselm to accept the crozier from the king's hand and then carried him off to be ordained archbishop. Now, unfortunately, William II Rufus, the king of England, was not a huge fan of Anselm's. And also, unfortunately for Anselm, he recovered from his sickness, and so he started to get into fights with him. We don't need to go into all of that right now. Suffice it to say that in order to get rid of Anselm, he sent him to the Pope in 1098, which was just in time for a little council that the Pope was holding in Bari in southern Italy. And the goal of the council was to help reincorporate the Greek-speaking Christians of southern Italy into the broader church fold. If you remember from past episodes, Sicily and southern Italy had been a little closer with the Greek-speaking empire rather than with the Latin-speaking church of the West. And so many of the churches there, they celebrated the liturgy in Greek, they spoke Greek, and they were much more aligned with the Greek-speaking East. Much of that was wiped out by the Saracen conquest of Italy and then with the Latin Normans taking over things, and it got even more confused. So Urban II held a council to try and get everyone on the same page. The big point of the debate was the filioque, which we've talked about in the past. It's the line in the creed in which the West reads that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. In the East, they just say that he proceeds from the Father. Filioque means and the Son. The Greek speakers wanted to assert that the Holy Spirit can only be said to proceed from the Father, and the Pope began arguing the contrary. And in fact, 
he was quoting from St. Anselm's book on the incarnation of the Lord, which Anselm had just sent him. Then realizing he couldn't do the argument justice compared to its author, he shouted out, Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, where are you? The rest of the scene's pretty awesome. We have it from Anselm's biographer who was there. He was a monk named Adamer. And I'm going to paraphrase it a little way by way of horse man. But Anselm hears his name called out and says, Lord and Father, what are your commands? Here I am. The Pope asks, why have you been silent when I've been making this argument the whole time? And then he invites him to come up, sit right next to him, and to take over the discussion. So Anselm gets up, and he sits next to the Pope, and everyone in the council is whispering to each other, who is this guy? Where did he come from? And then Anselm starts speaking, and he just knocks it out of the park. His arguments are beautiful and subtle and effective, and everyone listened and was convinced. And when he was done, Pope Urban said, blessed be your heart and your mind, blessed be your mouth and its eloquence. So with that awesome scene, we have to turn from the Eastern Christians in Italy to the Eastern Christians in Constantinople in the First Crusade. But before we get there, I need to make two initial points. First, I need to make a caveat. This is not a podcast about the Crusades, about their battles, their internal politics, etc. If you want an excellent short series on the Crusades, there's been a couple episodes we've done a long time ago in Catholic Bites, but even better, check out the Institute of Catholic Culture. I can put a link in the, in the show description. And they hosted a long time ago uh, Dr. Brendan McGuire from Christendom College. It's really easy, easy to listen to, very insightful. He, Dr. McGuire is a great storyteller, and you can really get a good sense of what the Crusades were like. Now, the second point is that when you hear the word crusade, it's very easy to think of this as an objectively evil thing. I heard one person describe the crusades as intolerant Western Christians who didn't have any more room to be intolerant in the West, so they went to go kill Muslims and Jews in the East. Now, to be sure, there were abuses and there were definitely evil parts of the crusades. It was a war and there were definitely times when different groups were targeted and, and, and killed. Uh, no one disputes that. But in general, there's a lot to be said for them. And I'm going to make those points as we go forward. So all I'm saying is not that they're 100% good, but just don't think automatically negative, as you might have thought. So the Crusades. If you remember way back, we used to talk a lot about Christians from around the Mediterranean. Some of the most fervent parts of Christendom were in North Africa and in the Middle East. And indeed, we had many popes from those areas. But we heard about how the Muslim armies of the Umayyad Caliphate basically conquered all of that territory, extending all the way from Sp to Spain and Sicily. It was basically as if two-thirds of the Christian world were wiped out in a very short time. And this memory of the much larger Christian world was still present in the church, even though at this time they're not really Christian. The Umayyads were then replaced by the Abbasid Caliphate and then the Fatimid Caliphate. Culturally and militarily, these empires were much stronger and much more important than the European states in the West, which looked like backwaters by comparison. Baghdad, under the Abbasid Caliphate, for example, was a huge center of culture and learning, drawing scholars from across the known world. In the early 1000s, the Fatimid Caliphate took over and was based out of Egypt, and there Cairo and the Egyptian scene was huge. And we saw how, in past episodes, how the learning in Spain, Muslim Spain, was so much greater and so much more important than it was in the Western world. So, Jerusalem and the holy sites had remained open to pilgrimage over this time period due to an agreement struck over 300 years ago by the local patriarch of Jerusalem and one of the Islamic rulers. But in 1009, Al-Hakim bi Amar Allah, the Fatimid Caliphate, who was rather ruthless and capricious, he embarked on a broad campaign to wipe out Christian churches in his territory. In October of 1009, he ordered the Church of the Holy Sepulchre destroyed, something that absolutely shocked Europe at the time. 
the most holy site in all of Christendom, the heart of Christianity itself, the place where Jesus was buried and rose again from the dead, it was destroyed by the so-called Mad Caliph. And now in 1009, the West was in no position to do anything about it. But you have to realize how this destruction played on the hearts of the people of Europe. And the church was rebuilt by his son in agreement with the Byzantines, but the damage was done. On top of that, stories started circulating about how pilgrims to the Holy Land were being mistreated, they were being abused, they were being forced to commit sacrilege in order to make it to the holy sites in, in general. And so there's this feeling in the West that's growing that our holy heritage, our uh, heart of our church is being destroyed. Now you fast forward to Urban II, at 1094, at the Synod of Piacenza, which we talked about a little earlier, a message came from the Byzantine emperor Alexius Comenius. A new Islamic empire, the Seljuk Turks, had moved in. They conquered the Holy Land, and they were now threatening Constantinople itself. They were right across the Bosphorus, the, the small strait of water, uh, in view of the city of Constantinople. And the Byzantines, they needed military help. So Alexius Comenius wrote to Urban asking for troops and supplies to help fight off this threat. In 1095, after hearing this message, Urban II went to France to help aid in the reform of the church in that country. There was also a fight with the king of France who wanted to divorce his wife, but that's not as big of a deal. And so Urban II called a large church council at Clermont in southern France, where many of the great nobles of France were present. And there, Urban II preached the crusade, and I'll quote a little bit from his homily. Although, O sons of God, you have promised more firmly than ever to keep the peace among yourselves and to preserve the rights of the church, there remains still an important work for you to do. Freshly quickened by the divine correction, you must apply the strength of your righteousness to another matter, which concerns you as well as God. For your brethren who live in the East are in urgent need of your help, and you must hasten to give them aid which has been promised them. For as the most of you have heard, the Turks and Arabs have attacked them, and have conquered the territory of Romania, which was the Greek Empire, as far west as the shore of the Mediterranean and the Hellespont, which is called the Arm of St. George. They have occupied more and more of the lands of those Christians and have overcome them in seven battles. They have killed and captured many and have destroyed the churches and devastated the empire. If you permit them to continue thus for a while with impurity, the faithful of God will be much more widely attacked by them. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's heralds to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the land of our friends. I say to those who are present, it meant also for those who are absent. Moreover, Christ commands it. All who die by the way, whether by land or by sea or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of their sins." This I grant them through the power of God, which I am invested. So immediately after hearing the homily, the nobles present shouted out, Deus lo volt, God wills it. And they sewed crosses on their garments and they pledged to lead armies down to Jerusalem. So now a little context. Urban saw this project as a twofold good. First, this would channel the fighting instincts of Europe away from killing each other, which was a problem. And secondly, it would reopen the Holy Land and allow Christianity to flourish where it had been silenced by this uh, Islamic empire of the previous couple centuries. Now, the response was electric, and contrary to popular belief, it wasn't motivated by cynical desires to gain power and territory, but by legitimate religious belief. Most of those who went on crusade had significant resources back in Europe and plenty of territory. There was a belief that many of those who went on crusade were second and third sons who wouldn't inherit anything from their family and they needed to make a name for themselves, but this is not historically accurate. 
Rather, they were mainly first sons who liquidated a lot of their own personal assets at great costs because they wanted to do God's will and they wanted to free the Holy Land. A huge number of troops signed up. Up to 60,000 started making their way through Italy and the Balkans to Constantinople. Again, I won't go into the military details, but in the end, they were successful. They conquered Jerusalem in 1099 and set up the Latin Crusader kingdoms, which would last for about a century. Urban was in communication with the Crusaders the whole time. He helped guide their efforts and restrain their bad impulses. And as I mentioned, there were bad impulses. There were uh, massacres of people who shouldn't have been killed. And there was a certain amount of intolerance and a certain cynical desire for power. But in the whole, this was a holy crusade. And this is not going to be the last crusade, as we will soon hear. Now, one note, though, on how the First Crusade really affects our story. On his way back from France to Italy in 1096, Urban met with some of the Crusader leaders, who he encouraged, blessed, and processed with down to Rome. And there, the sheer impact of the flower of French nobility entering with the Pope really ended things for the anti-Pope Guibert, who was still in possession of the Castle San Angelo, but basically nothing else. It wouldn't be until 1098, when the Norman troops finally conquered the castle, that Rome would be entirely the Pope's again, but basically Guibert was completely finished. Guibert's own brother took the cross and went on crusade at the preaching of Urban II in 1099. Urban II died later that year on July 29, 1099. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica and beatified by Pope Leo XIII. His successor, Paschal II, will pick up where he left off, and we'll talk about him next time. Thanks for listening to Habemus Popham. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>